You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. You're back listening to Confidential Brief on 101.9 FM in Johannesburg, streaming worldwide on chaifm.com. I'm joined in studio by Brigadier Gerard Labuskakhni, retired. He was head of the criminal profiling at the South African Police Services, which is a unit which can be very um, equally um, compared to that of the Behavioral Analysis Unit, the BAU of the FBI in America. A lot of television programs being made about that unit and very fascinating work that they do. Gerard, welcome to the show. Thanks, Chad. Thanks to all the listeners. Gerard, first of all, um, South Africans, I think, are unaware that we have a profiling mm. division and that we actually do have profilers within the police services. What was your role and how mm. did you get into that particular mm. position within the police? Well, first, a lot of people incorrectly assume that most modern law enforcement agencies have this capacity, and it's actually the anomaly. In fact, the fact that we had one since about 1994-95, we're actually one of the longest-serving profiling units in the world with the most experience. Um, you know, In America, it's, it's really the FBI that provides that services to various law enforcement agencies. And here and there, one or two states that have it, but not it's not comprehensively throughout the world, even in Europe. So I got into this in uh, 2001. There was a post to advertise. Mickey Pistorius, who many people might know, was originally the head of the unit. She'd resigned at that point. And I always said to myself, you know, I, I'd done my master's and, and doctorate on serial murder, interviewing serial murderers, but never with the view that I'm going to end up doing necessarily doing this kind of work. And the post was advertised 2001. I got it. I set up maybe I'll be here for two years, and I ended up spending 14 and a half years. And, and primarily the focus is um, helping police solve complex cases of a weird nature. That's the easiest way to look at it. So that would include your serial murder cases, multi-murder cases, a lot of serial rape cases. You know, it would include child sex offenders, single murders with a bizarre background or circumstances. Um, and it was, and, and in, as time went by, we did a lot of threat assessment cases where people were being threatened and we would do an assessment to determine how concerned should we be and what to do about that. And then it was, you know, cases, like I said, you know, all the, all the serial murder cases that were happening at the time would be, our unit would be involved. And it was things like the Oscar Pistorius case, the family murders like we had recently, the Fum Bradar murder down in, in Stellenbosch where he was convicted of killing his parents and sister. So usually the weird stuff that the cops might not have ever dealt with before, an individual detective, and we would go there and assist. I think a lot of people do remember the days of Mickey Pistorius, mm. and, and prior to that, uh, she worked under Sacred Brits, and they went into yep. the private sector. You must have worked a lot with, with a regular on our show before he passed away, um, Pete Bailefelt. Yep, yep, yep. Um, sure. So, so can we expect anything in the future in terms of of books from you that <laughs> that are going to detail some of your more interesting cases and experiences? You know, a lot of people have asked that. Um, you know, I've toyed with the idea. You know, it's a lot of effort. You're gonna you want to make sure it's obviously as accurate and possible, and you know, probably in the same format that other people do this. You know, a bunch of cases that you worked on and your personal insights. Now, unfortunately, the sad reality: authors in South Africa make, if lucky, ten rand a book. So, you know, the amount of time you put into it is definitely not a financial thing that you're going to make lots of money. And it's your Jacques Poe with his book, you know, about the government. He, he made a good, reasonable amount of money from that. Or with Dion Mayer, of course. Um, so you want to have to really balance up what the time you're giving up to do that. Um, and it's also, you know, sometimes you feel like you've moved on and to, to go back into those memories, you kind of almost wonder, maybe they should, I don't know. That lie, I don't know. I'll, I'll see. That's all I can say. It's interesting you should bring up Jacques Poe's book, The President's Keepers. It actually broke every record. Mm. South Africa, just to show you how low book sales are and what's considered a, a bestseller, 5,000 to 6,000 yeah. sales is regarded bestseller. The best non-fiction crime book up until The President's Keepers was Killing Kebble by Mandy yeah. Wiener, yeah. sold 70,000 copies. And then along came President's Keepers, which went into, I think it's third or fourth print, yeah. over 200,000 copies written. But let me tell you this. Don't give up hope. There is a huge 
huge gap in South Africa for true crime yeah. stories. When one looks at Isaac Duplessis' book on Buda for yeah. he actually had a spin-off um, on Ralph Haynes, the, the, God, the Godfather Funny Vestrant. Yeah. So South Africans are still intrigued by it, yeah. and there's most definitely a market. And I think that's, it, I get the impression that South Africans are starting to buy local books. You know, we're 10 years ago, it, you know, I just don't think it was the same market. I mean, you look at someone like Vanessa Terra, who wrote a wonderful book about her experiences of being uh, abused by one of her previous boyfriends. And that I sometimes think people like that have something far more important and meaningful to say than, than I have to say. I honestly believe that people are so fascinated by what it is you do mm-hmm. that there most definitely would be a market. And when one looks at how true crime has developed in South Africa and when one looks at the stories of South Africa, not just our imported criminals but our mm-hmm. local criminals, yeah. there, there is most definitely a gap. So let's talk about some of the more local cases that you worked that our, our, our listeners may recall, mm-hmm. specifically in, in, in regards to the serial killer mm-hmm. realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, look, I think the one, you know, they, they, they often stand out for different reasons. I think one that does really stand out a lot to me is the, the quarry serial murder case, which a lot of people would never have heard of, which occurred in 2002. We had five murders, then there was a gap of four years, and then in 2006, we had 11 more murders. And this was in Centurion. If you know where the Shell Ultra Cities are on either side of the highway, I think it's Sam Rand off-ramp, and there's a quarry not too far off that road. And this guy was basically committing his murders around there. Um, so in 2002, we were looking at those cases along with another case at the same time called the Highwaymen, a bunch of bodies along the highway to N1, and we wondered if it was the same person, although these bodies were, these five bodies with the quarry series were further down the highway towards the Krugersdorp off-ramp or the R55, uh, Santon, uh, Pretoria West off-ramp, whereas the Highwaymen bodies were close towards Pretoria itself. Um, that guy was caught and sold, but he was in prison when these ones were committed. So those was the remaining five were investigated, no suspects, no leads, and went sort of went cold. And as I said, the four-year gap in the 2006, we started to have more bodies, and we realized that this is probably the same guy. It's the same general vicinity. Make a long story short, what happened is that he had been arrested shortly after the fifth one in 2002 and was awaiting trial at trial for an attempted rape of a young girl, uh, was convicted. Uh, was referred to the High Court for sentence, and this was this whole time that he was the silent period, and the High Court overturned his sentence and released him. And within two weeks, he started killing again. And we had caught up with him in about September of 2006 after he unfortunately killed another 11 ladies, and uh, 16 in total, yep, and uh, got, him, got him convicted. The psychopathy of these serial killers is exceptionally fascinating because we've all watched television programs mm. about serial killers and seem to think that they stick to a single modus operandi. But there was a case of a particular serial killer in South Africa who was targeting both barbers at a stage oh, yeah. as well as women around Wemapan and the mine dumps. Mm. How is it that they can have a fixation not on just one particular modus operandi, mm. but they can do they can do various crimes? Yeah. Look, Ed, you do kind of get the typical thing of they'll typically in South Africa they'll go for black females, usually unemployed black females. They'll lure them with an offer of employment. So they'll bump into them literally in the street, offer them a job of, say, 500 rand a day, which for an unemployed lady is a lot of money, and they'll go with this person, and then he'll rape and kill them when he gets them to a secluded area. So that's like probably, I'd say, 95%. And then you do get the people like the Wemapan, Cedric Marke, who Indian tailors in this area with a hammer, then couples around the Wemapan with, you know, that he would shoot, and then a few people here and there randomly in their houses. And that was not the norm, but it, and that was very confusing, and Pete Bellefeld was, was involved in that, and it was only when they picked up a receipt uh, that made them realize, but hang on, maybe these couple of series that we're looking at 
are actually the same person. So that's not the norm. You had a guy, um, a saloon killer many years ago who took a, got hold of a .22 rifle and would just shoot people at random and no sexual element involved with it. So they do get these outliers. You had the Norwood serial murderer, uh, Corpus Helmace, 89 to 91, 92, and he was a policeman at Norwood Barracks, you know, targeting women in their, in their houses and rape and murder them and shoot them with a service pistol. So you get those anomalies and those are always quite fascinating. Um, they're not the day-to-day stuff. Um, like I said, with offering a job and, and drawing a young female out into the felt, but, uh, yeah. It's fascinating that we give them these names. We have the, we have the, the sugarcane killers. Yeah. We had the station killers, etc. How many would you estimate at any given time serial killers are mm-hmm. there operating in South Africa? Kind of if we look at our figures of how many cases as, as a unit, when I was still in the investigative psychology section, that, that will come to our attention. Whether it be by DNA links or modus operandi links, etc. We probably get involved with 10, 10 new series every year. Um, of new, a new that came to our attention. So to be called a series, you have to have at least two murders. So you know, ten, um, ten new series of murders, rapes were in the hundreds uh, per year, new ones. Um, in my time in SAPS, I think I worked. I stopped counting after I got to 110 different murder series uh, that I worked on in my time in SAPS for 14 years. We're chatting to Joe Labuskakni about psychology and the profiling of, of serial offenders. When we come back, I want to talk to him more about what he's doing today now that he's left the unit. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. Totally fascinating and engrossing conversation with Gerard Labuskakni, who used to head up the psychological unit, which uh, we would know as a profiling unit within the South African Police Services at the rank of Brigadier. Gerard, what are you doing now? Mm. So, yeah, so when I decided to leave SAPS, and that was a difficult decision, I just really got tired of the... The organizational frustrations, not the work itself, like many policemen, unfortunately, do, and policewomen. Um, and I decided, like I said earlier, a lot of what we started to do is more and more advising people, companies, when there were threats made towards their staff or towards people, death threats, anonymous threats, etc., threats towards CEOs of companies. And I realized that that's, that's a fascinating, of course, to, uh, to assess it, determine how concerned we should be and what can we do about it. But it was also, it was preventative, where all my other work, you know, someone's been murdered, someone's been raped, a child's been molested, you can't fix that. So there's often like a, a empty, hollow victory when you get someone arrested and convicted. But here with threat assessment, you're actually about trying to prevent the threat from actually ever happening. So when I decided to leave, I realized that if we were being contacted by the CEOs of big companies, securities teams saying, can you assess this weird letter we got or this threat that we got and advise us, I realized, whoa, there's no one doing it here in South Africa in that sense, a behavioral threat analysis, which is quite common in the United States and, and other parts of the world. So then I decided to start up a company with a colleague who she's now also left the police, Bronwyn Stollers, she worked with me. And so we started up LNS Threat Management literally 1st of March 2016, three years ago. And the, the main focus is advising corporates on how to assess threats, whether it's staff on staff threats, you know, or someone who's been fired from the place of employment who makes threats back towards his old colleagues, or when customers make threats, or you have a mentally ill person who sends just a weird email to the, someone in the company, the CEO, which clearly has a delusional content. And basically advising the company how concerned they should be, but more importantly, how are we going to get this to stop and not actually happen? Uh, and that's the management side of your threat. So it ranges from stalking to unhappy ex-romantic partners who can threat to threaten, come to the place of employment and threaten their ex-girlfriend or wife, like I said, to strangers, to people in your employment. Amazingly enough, a lot of threats are staff on staff. And like I said, your customers. And it's really helping preventatively to make sure that that doesn't get to the threat that we perceive it might get to. 
and training their staff to do this kind of stuff, uh, a, a workplace violence policy on how we should deal with these. Because often when you find a violent incident has happened and people go, oh, I thought he was going to do that. And it's like, what do you mean? Well, this guy was always saying strange things or making threats. Well, why didn't you do anything? Why didn't you tell someone? I didn't know I should. I didn't know I had to. I didn't know who to tell. And that's when you see the gaps in the system in, that, that companies have about dealing with. We're so good at dealing with the external threats. So we have security guards. We have, you know, close protection for certain people in the company, access control. But, you know, half the time when it comes to workplace threats, the problem's already on your premises because they have an access card because they work there or they have legitimate business to be there. Gerard, when does an HR department feel necessary to intervene when they believe that a staff member's spouse or partner may have become a threat to the organization. How do they find this out? How do yeah. they get to the point? And what are the triggers? Yeah, so that's the problem because a lot of people, it's called the, the victims, the, you know, the employee who's the, the, the target of this harassment by their ex-partner. A lot of them feel like I can't bring this to my employer's attention. If it's embarrassing, they might punish me, uh, etc. So they don't want to bring it in or they think this is a purely personal thing. I don't want to tell anybody. But the problem is the employer has an onus when there's any kind of potential harm. So imagine now the boyfriend comes there and he has an argument with the secretary downstairs because they or receptionist because they won't let him in because and he wants to see his ex-girlfriend upstairs. From that point on, that's a workplace violence issue and the company needs to intervene. Now, unfortunately, what happens is a lot of companies say to the young lady, sort this nonsense out, and they almost victimize her because of this spillover of the domestic violence scenario into the workplace. But actually, you have a duty of care to your employees. But what happens if he comes back again and hurts that receptionist the second time? Or he starts to phone all of the co-workers of this young lady and harass them because they, he thinks they had an affair with his ex-girlfriend and that's why they broke up. It becomes an, an operational issue. So what we always say is you want to know about this the earliest time as possible and you want to educate your staff that we want to hear about this. We want you to come to us. If you've had an abusive boyfriend that you've broken up with and you think he's going to come here, we want to know about it so we can be prepared to deal with it. And that's a, like a really big mind shift that companies have to really get into because they often say, but that's personal stuff is not our problem. Well, when he walks onto your premises with a gun and shoots the receptionist and that employee and the person who he thinks was having an affair with his girlfriend, good luck in court saying it's not your problem. We seem to have seen an increase in police-related relationships yeah. where police officers have married each other and violence at their home have spilled over into the actual police stations oh, yeah. Yeah. and there have been bystanders and fellow police officers shot. Is this an increase that we're seeing because of social media or has there always been mm. an issue because of the stress related with the job? Yeah, you know, in the, in the year before I left SAPS, we were looking specifically at those where at least one of the parties or the, the person who pulls the trigger was a policeman at the time and very often it was a police partner or sometimes it was a civilian partner. So we started to look at those because we realized that we were seeing more, but was it a question of there's an increase or we just seen it or was it coming to our attention more? And the reality is a lot of the issues that they were facing was issues of jealousy and substance abuse, which is exactly what the non-police ones are. Now, perhaps the difference is all the policemen use their service pistol. So one might argue if they didn't have a service pistol, would it have turned out differently maybe or not have happened then or they've used a knife? So it's really difficult to say because I don't think anybody has done a, f a formal proper study. As I said, we were looking at it just because it was we were getting quite fascinated by these cases. But the, the trigger issues were the jealousy issue usually and substances being involved. Um, unfortunately, the media likes certain stories. And I think when a policeman does it, it's far more media attention grabbing than when it's a good old fashioned civilian doing it to his partner, sadly. Um, but it's definitely something, I mean, like I said, police, police weapons were used in, in every single one of the incidences that we looked at, which is perhaps one way one can, can have a look at this. Gerard, South Africa at this stage had one of the highest incidences in the world of family murder suicides, mm, mm. where a husband would become unemployed, he would kill his family and then himself. 
Um, is that still uniquely a South African mm-hmm. problem, or has it now spread worldwide? No, I think there were there were always work cases. I just know that I think it was the the late 80s, early 90s, the Human Sciences Research Council did a specific study in these types of cases. Uh, at that point, it was predominantly amongst Afrikaans families. Um, so I think we're one of the few countries that maybe decided to have a uh, have a look at it, um, but it has happened overseas. What we have seen perhaps more commonly, and still it's fairly rare, is, is that the, the son killing the parents and then a brother or, or, a, or a daughter. And we've had definitely a few of those over the past few years. The Creek was that case in Northern Cape from Bredamur and Stellenbosch, case in Etwatwa, a young guy took an axe to his many of his family members. So I think we've probably had more of those than we've had of the sort of Family murders that involves the suicide of the offender. But over the years, we've definitely had those cases. You talk about work you do for corporates. So I'd like to give you an example and find out whether that is the type of work you would do. Um, very recently, there were a spate of um, bombings and IEDs found in a well-known chain, um, a, a retail chain down in KZN. Mm-hmm. Um, then another store um, was threatened with it, but it, it was totally out of the yeah. Of the of the profile of the previous, then of course another chain store, um, very well known in South Africa, um, had received threats that certain products had had been poisoned or yeah. compromised. Is this something yep. that is becoming more prolific? And what what do you refer to that as in your yeah. field? So so while the bread and butter stuff, I suppose you could say, is the individual interpersonal threat, you know, one person threatening another or anonymous person threatening another. But we definitely do um, also get involved in your extortion cases, where like you said, product tampering, extortion, we're going to damage your products, whether it be food, electronic products, other type of medicines, unless you pay X amount of money. We've definitely been involved in quite a few of those, and those are definitely fascinating cases to assess the threat and also the negotiation side of it. Uh, we've also recently been involved in, in a few of these sort of higher profile kidnapping cases that took place and advising different families. Um, and yes, bomb threats. Uh, and, you know, if you don't do this, bombs are going to be placed, again, assessing the kind of level of threat and how one should deal with this and manage it. Yeah, that is sort of also in the spectrum of threat assessment stuff. Do you find there's a lot of copycats? I wouldn't say too much. I think what we find is someone who wants to harm a business for often personal reasons might latch on to what they hear. So they might suddenly bring an ISIS into it. Or some, they might claim to be part of a right-wing group that is well-known for maybe having done these things in the past. But I can't say that you know we have one and now suddenly we have a second one popping up. I can't say we've really seen a lot of those in that sense, the copycats. I mean, obviously, with for example, the kidnappings, we did have a spate of genuine kidnappings taking place. But those appeared to be um, you know, the, the same syndicate that was operating. We're going to take our last break of the day. When we come back, we're going to find out how you can get in touch with Gerard should you require more information about this unique service of profiling in South Africa. You're listening to Confidential Brief with Chad Thomas. I'm in conversation with uh, Gerard Labuskakni. We've been talking about criminal profiling and how it can assist in um, preventing uh, a crime from taking place, but also how it can help in solving a crime from taking place. Um, we've seen a lot of attacks on religious houses of religion mm. of late, and a lot of them have been Muslim houses of faith. Mm-hmm. And the, the the understanding within the communities is that it's it's rival um, religion, but within the, the Muslim faith itself. Mm-hmm. Is this something that you also would look at? Yeah, look, definitely, you know, one of the big fields in threat assessment, besides workplace violence, school-based violence or educational-based violence, and um, uh, sort of the, the sort of domestic violence story, the fourth biggest area is sort of in terms of terrorism-related issues. So there, and, and there are a lot of nice tools that we use to determine how much of an extremist, where is someone on that on that 
sort of continuum of extremism that are used to design, whether it's religious extremism, cultural, political extremism, environmental extremism, to kind of figure out where that person is along that pathway towards becoming an extremist of, of a concerning nature, um, to, so that we don't unfairly you know, chastise people who are becoming more strong in their beliefs, but when it becomes a a problem for harm towards other people, yes. I found it strange that when one looked at the attacks on the mosques in South Africa, it was it was the same religion with just a different understanding. Mm-hmm. And then I thought to myself, but this is what's been happening in Northern Ireland for Absolutely. years. Yeah. You have two Christian groups, one being Protestant, one being Catholic. So it's not defined as being different religions. It's just defined as being different understandings. Mm-hmm. And it really is quite bizarre. Gerard, we're running out of time fast. If our listeners want to find out more about what it is you do mm-hmm. and to find out more about um, your services, how do they get in touch with you? Well, the easiest way, if you want to just read a bit more, or perhaps even contact us is uh, LNS Threat Management. LNS Threat Management is the company's name. The website. So if you Google that, you'll get the website. But also if you go to www.threatsa one word .co.za, that's the company's uh, website address. If you want to find out more, perhaps about me in terms of the profiling stuff that I used to do, I also have a personal website, uh, which is www.forensic-psychologist.co.za. But again, if you Google my name, you'll usually pop up with one of those two. So uh, that's the best way. There's some contact details. There there and a bit more about the type of work that I do in both of my spheres of my life. Do you still give um, presentations on the topic? Yep, so whether it's to corporates, but I also do have a post at WITS, I'm honorary associate professor at WITS in the forensic medicine department, where I'll give some lectures to their BSc forensic science honors students. Uh, and of course, when people request, whether it's corporates or the universities, I'm always happy to uh, come and speak to people and, and share my knowledge and time and advice. Last question. If one of our listeners is in an HR position, when should they contact somebody such as yourself to find out whether a staff member poses a mm. risk to the organization or whether somebody related to that staff member poses a risk to that organization? Long before you ever come aware with it because you, what you want to have in place already is people who know what to look for, a system in place to deal with these things, people trained to assess them. So if you're waiting for it to happen or there's a concern, it's already in a way, not too late, but you know, if you want to be prepared long before you even these things come to your attention. Uh, so that's the best time. So now is the best time to make that answer quite short. Retired Brigadier Gerard Labuskakhni with multiple letters after his name. Thank you so much. This has been very, very fascinating. Thanks. And we'll definitely have you back on the show soon. Great. Thank you. Thank you.